care what the Word of God says. He does and takes matters into his own hands. And in essence, he becomes his own authority, determining what's right and what's wrong for himself. And we see him violating his, his uh, commitments, these, these uh, vows that he had taken or had been uh, put upon him. Uh, as a Nazarite, he was consecrated by God according to Numbers chapter 6, and he wasn't to have his, what, haircut? What else was he not supposed to do? To touch a dead body or what? To have wine or actually anything that comes from divine. And we see him playing fast and loose with God's commands. We see him uh, going into a vineyard. We don't know what he did there, but we're assuming that he did touch um, some of the, the grapes that were there. We see him touching dead bodies. We see him compromising morally with uh, women, something that not as a Nazarite, but just as a, a Jew, he was not supposed to do, was to be intermarrying or interacting with pagan, unbelieving women. And we see him going and being very immoral. He marries a, a Philistine woman against the counsel of the Word of God, specifically, and his parents. We see him sleeping with a prostitute and then with the, the money-loving Delilah. And so we see, though, that it's his eyes that got him into trouble. And what does God take from him? His eyes. His eyes. And his, his life, though it is a challenge to us to see someone so endued with strength and, and courage, it's also a warning that we may not follow and be susceptible to the same compromise that he gave himself over too. So his life, in essence, is a bittersweet symphony. Uh, there's the song by a group called the Verve Pipe um, that was called Bittersweet Symphony in the late 1990s. And, and it's interesting that I, I look at his life and I see it as a bittersweet symphony where he's an individual. It's like you want him just to change a little bit and things would be great. He'd be fantastic. He has this untapped and unfulfilled potential. You get these, these uh small episodes or glimpses or flashes of this, the greatness of what God has done through him. But you think, how much more could have been done if he had been set apart completely, not just outwardly, but inwardly, that his heart was completely devoted to God? Now, we know he had faith, small as though it could have been, because he ends up in the Hall of Fame. And to some commentators, as I've been reading this, they have said that uh, this is a guy that had a little faith, uh, meaning that he had enough faith that God would work in and through him but it may not be a great faith that would, be, that would end up for him being consecrated completely unto God in his heart. So I see a guy that's needing to change. And I see us is needing to change. How many of you would like to change? Like to change something about yourself? How many of you would like to change something about your spouse? <laughs> Becky. Yeah. It's all me. I mean, we do. We want to change. We all want to change in some way. There's something we don't like about ourselves, and, and not just outwardly. For some of us, it's some outward thing or someone, we, something we feel is unfulfilled. Or for, for many of us, it's, we're not being who God does. Really, we feel that God desires us to be. There's some sin uh, that is holding us back, that keeping us from being who God wants us to be. And that's why I, I like this song, because in the song, it kind of captures the essence of modern-day people. And he, he says this in the, in, the, in the lyrics, No change, like I have no change in my life, but I can change. I can change. I can change. I'm here in my mold. I'm here in my mold. And I'm a million different people from one day to the next. I can't change my mold. No, no, no. I can't change. I can't change. So it's this, I can change, but then I can't. And I think many of us try that. I think that's why many different religions, they try to offer that you can change on your own. 
that you can be the master of your own destiny, the, the captain of your own fortune, the, the uh, carpe diem, if you will, that I'm going to seize the day and I'm going to be who I am. And many word of faith teachers teach that. Many different uh, philosophies teach that. But you know, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says that you can't change. Did you know that? On your own, you cannot change. Only because of Christ can you change. It's not something you can do. I mean, you can change some things in your life. That's true. But you can't become a new creature because we are lost in sin, hopelessly lost and trapped. And it's not until we look and see who Christ is that he enabled us to be a new creature. That we see that we were hopelessly lost in our sin. That we were chained. That we were idolaters. That we had, we had no, we didn't have God and we were without hope in the world, as the scriptures said. And it's only because of Christ and what he has done for us that we can have a living hope because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then he, and in turn, gives his spirit unto us, enabling us to change and becoming the people that he desires us to be. So we see in Samson an individual whom uh, is not yet a beneficiary of what Christ has done on the cross. It does not have the Spirit of God indwelling upon, in him. The, we see the Spirit of God clothing him and coming upon him, but not indwelling him to help become the creature and creation that God wants him to be. So I hope to see that we can change through in and through Christ. And we can see what it means to have a relationship with God. And we can look at these Old Testament examples as templates, if you will, of individuals that are flawed, that were susceptible to all kinds of sin. And hopefully that we can see ourselves avoiding the sins that they did, but yet emulating the faith that they had. So today we're going to see what it means... Um, what happens and what it means to follow God after we've blown it, after we've sinned, after we've fallen. We can get a small glimpse of that in Samson as we look at the, the end of this bittersweet symphony. It's, it's sweet in that here's a great man of faith, but it's bitter to say how much was lost, how much more could have been done. So I invite us all to turn today and, and see this challenge but this bitter warning of what can happen to us if we turn from god so that we can use samson as a template we can see us turning back to god and what god requires of us now before we go any further let's ask for his blessing on our message time father we come before you knowing that we can't change in and of ourselves that we are lost each one of us are without hope and without god in the world but it's only because of what you have done that we can truly become new a new creation in christ that we can now have hope that we can change and be the people that you desire us to be. So Lord, please be in our time today. Help us to know how that we can be further transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, not being conformed to the things of this world, but being transformed as we look upon him and as we renew our minds. Renew our minds today and help us to truly go forth changed that your name might receive glory and that we might increase in joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, let's jump right in. And remember, uh, the book, just to, as a quick aside, this book is a transitional book in Israel's history. Where you're going from them entering into the promised land in the book of Joshua. And then we have the monarchy started in 1 Samuel. We see this, this period of time, this transitional period where God raises up these individuals called judges. Now this is a time of great moral compromise in the nation of Israel. And one of the things I love about this book is it doesn't try to hide it. 
It shows it for all of its warts, all of its, its, uh, the wrinkles, everything that you can think about in this passage. It is shown to us in all of our hideousness. And we see a nation in moral decline where the constant theme of the book is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now let me ask us a question. What kind of period or time, time, of, uh, time are we living in now? Is it not very similar? That we're living in a time where everybody does whatever they want to do, that you can't tell me what to do. It's a time of moral compromise, and we see that going on within churches and all around us. I mean, we become our own uh, gods unto ourselves. And we see here that Samson is not immune to that, but he himself is starting to do what is right in his own eyes. Though consecrated to God, he is susceptible to the culture around him. Now, we see, as we've seen before, that God took his eyes from him and that he had continually compromised God's commands. Now, when we compromise God's commands, we have to understand that there's going to be fallout ourselves. There is always some sort of fallout or consequence for our sin. But what do we do when we find ourselves dealing with these consequences? What then? So looking at Samson then as a template, we can see that turning back to him requires us dealing with the fallout. That's the first point that I want you to write down in your notes. Dealing with the fallout. This is the the consequences. We see Samson dealing with the complete consequence of his sin. Now, I think many of us don't think that there are going to be consequences for our actions. We're not going to have to deal with the consequences of our sin. That we'll never have to come uh, face to face with it. Or we can get away with it, never have to deal with it. But that couldn't be any further from the truth. See, dealing with the fallout of our sin involves understanding that God will only shield us for so long. See, Samson had been playing fast and loose with God's command for a long period of time. We're not exactly sure. We see him at the beginning of his uh, quote-unquote ministry, if you will, with his father there and him wanting a Philistine woman. And we see at the end of our passage for today in Judges 16 that he's being buried in his father's tomb. So his father died. We don't know how long a period of time this occurred. Could have been weeks, months, probably was more likely years over which this occurred. Now, there weren't consequences initially for his sin, but here finally it comes to the point. God's going to let you get by for so long because he wants you to be, he wants to bring your repentance. He's being kind to you, not treating us as our sins deserve. And his loving kindness to us is meant to lead us to repentance, not to enable us to stay in sin. Then he wants us to turn from it. And eventually, he's going to bring, he's going to bring warnings. He's going to bring guides and teachers and, and trying to bring you back. And if you continue in your rebellion, he's going to say, I'm done shielding. I'm going to bring discipline in their life. And they're going to, to experience the fullness of these consequences. God will only shield us for so long. And he might then allow us to suffer extreme consequences. Allow us to suffer extreme consequences. For Samson, as I showed before, the thing that got him in trouble was his eyes, and that's exactly what God took from him because he was sleeping with a, um, trying to marry a Philistine woman and then a prostitute and then the money-grubbing Delilah. Now, I'm reminded of, this, of, a, of a different individual, um, someone that I had known who uh, God had blessed financially, given him a great job and, and enabled him to uh, have all this money. 
and he was giving unto the Lord, but as time went on, he started having a lot more toys. So taking the money away from the church, he said, just a little bit to, to pay for this toy, and then I'll pay it back later. But as time went on, he continued giving more and more to his quote-unquote toys, or his, a lot of his uh, great luxuries, if you will. And he started neglecting God. And God kept prodding him and telling him he needed to give back. And he's like, I'll do it, I'll do it. But he never did. Well, what happened was, is the economy dipped. And what happened? He lost his job. Not only did he lose his job, he ended up losing his house. And then he, he, he's trying to figure out what happened. And then he has to find another job. And he finds another job at exactly the pay that he had... Um, it was significantly less. The amount that was less was the exact amount that he wasn't giving to the church. And he saw it as the hand of God. And he said, God had been reminding me and telling me and prompting me to give this to him. Not as a means of compulsion, but he felt he, he was supposed to give it, and he didn't. And because of that, God then brought his income down to what he, he had been giving. I mean, much, much, much lower. See, God will allow us to suffer consequences in order to wake us up to the reality of who He is. Now, here's what else that happens. God will expose us and let us look stupid. Let us look completely stupid. I know of another man who who, uh, was serving in a church and he uh, began to not spend as much time with his wife and flirt with a lot of ladies. The next thing you know, he was having affairs and he kept them secret for a period of time. And eventually, though, it came out. And here he was, this man that everybody esteemed. And what happened? He said, I lost everything. I lost my family. I lost my job. I lost my car. And, I, and if, where am I sleeping? In the middle of a closet of a warehouse. See, God will allow us to look dumb. He even said, I just look like a fool. See, that's what Samson did. Here he is. He's being brought before the Philistines, the dreaded, hated, uncircumcised Philistines. And he's having to dance. He looks like a complete idiot. And it was because of his sin that he did not follow God's word and accept his admonition for his life. And he continued on saying, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to follow Sinatra's advice. I did it my way. And that's what we see happening in him suffering because of that. Now, he will allow us to suffer extreme consequences. He will let us look stupid. And then he will permit others to scoff at us. Look at verse 23 for a moment. The Philistines are rejoicing and they're saying, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. Now, most scholars say that this is a song that they're singing. And I'm trying to find the equivalent because the lyrics don't really fly, but I'm saying this is the equivalent of singing, we are the champions. You know, this is them looking at Samson and then waving the flag going, we are the champ in front of Samson. You ever had someone celebrate after a victory in your face? You've seen that on the Super Bowl and the guys are like, woo, and the other guy's crying on the ground. I mean, this is what we have. These guys are are celebrating Samson going, we won over you. I mean, they're, 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 it's. They're pulling him down. They're laughing at him. He's become a complete laughing suck. They're taunting him. They're scoffing him. See, when we give ourselves over to sin, we give opportunity for unbelievers to scoff at us and disparage the name of Christ. This past uh, April, uh, mega pastor Bob McCoy of the 
20,000 member church, uh, Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale, resigned his position because of a moral failing. It turns out that he'd had multiple affairs. Uh, he, he is hugely popular in South Florida and had a global ministry. And when that broke, the news broke out, what do you think many different people, especially unbelievers, said? It was a heyday. It was like throwing gas on a fire. Um, the Huffington Post, which is a pretty liberal um, website and newspaper, there were some of the commentators come out. And I try to not read commentators because I find that they're morons. Um, I know else to put it if you're a commentator. I'm sorry. But many of the commentators were like this. It would seem that someone caught Pastor Bob in the act. I love it! Meaning that he's a hypocrite. Finally someone sees it. Another commentator says, it's not a moral failing unless you get caught. Another commentator said this, believers often claim the moral high road, claiming that without belief in a God or fear of God, that atheists cannot lead a moral life. Atheists know that morality has nothing to do with God belief, that decency is a function of the individual. This is proved daily as stories such as this one emerge. Hypocrisy, thy name is religion. See all the disparaging of the name of Christ. And I would disagree with the commentators. First of all, it's a moral failing whether you get caught or not. God knows. It's not about it coming out. It's about God knows. And it's about the heart. And, and he fell. And we're all susceptible to falling. And, and he, though, is in a higher position and of greater influence. So then the repercussions are greater. But there is forgiveness for him as well. Not to say that there are not consequences. And secondly, atheists can be moral to a point. It depends how one defines morality, first of all. And if you use yourself as the standard, you'll always succeed and be moral. But if you use God's standard, all without exception are deficient. Not to mention, history has proven that no people can rise higher than their conception of God. And if their thoughts of God are very high, then they will value virtue. But if their conception of God be low or non-existent, then they will be base and depraved. And while there may be atheists in the U.S., there is enough of the conception of God in our heritage that can be found throughout America to serve as a moral compass, even if they do not realize it. Now, see, what bothers me most of all is not just the scoffing that goes on, but it's the stain upon God's name. Look at verse 23 with me. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. They're attributing their victory to Dagon, their God. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. It's a celebration. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravage of our country. This is where they're singing, we are the champions. Now, they're attributing victory to Dagon. Dagon was a Semitic god of fertility, of grain, which is a symbol of fertility. Some scholars say rain. Others also say of fish and or fishing, another symbol of multiplying. Uh, and Undoubtedly, Dagon was taking vengeance upon Samson for him. If you remember, just a couple chapters before, he had torched their grain. And now their God is getting back at him. So they're attributing this victory to their God. And they are staining, in essence, God's name. Our sinful actions place a stain upon God's name. The people look at us and they say, as a matter of fact, it says in Romans that Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you and our disobedience. When we offer ourselves up as examples, our, our fall is that more opportunity for them to blaspheme the name of God. Now, I know we all know this, uh, that God's name is stained when we sin. 
But allow me to say that there will always be people who are criticizing the name of Christ. There will always be people and Christians who fall. And even if there weren't, there will still be those who will disparage and stain God's name. There will always be others, however, who will do heroic things for Christ's name. And we need to hear more about them. More about those heroes of the faith and look at their examples. Because for every Bob McCoy, that there are the John Pipers, the John MacArthur's, the Billy Graham's, the Tony Evans, the Jill Briscoe's, the Johnny Erickson Tata's, the Janet Parshall's, the Kay Arthur's, and the, like the Argentinian Luis Palau or Chinese brother Yoon or the Indian Ravi Zacharias. Great and faithful men and women of God who have not fallen. And even then, there are those who have fallen within biblical history that help us to have encouragement, knowing that we can have forgiveness as well. David is a great example of this. How many of us have gone to look at the example of David because we know and we are well acquainted with falling and failure, that we know that we need grace and that we can have forgiveness and God can still use us even though we have sinned. But many, we need more examples of those who have done great things for the name of Christ and we need to read more and become more familiar with their stories that we might be encouraged and let me, let me add a word of caution here. I, would pr- I think we should read those who are dead because they're not going to mess that up. <laughs> the living guys can always fall. But those who are dead, their lives are sealed. We need to, to fill our minds with examples of those who uh, followed God so faithfully. Names like the German Martin, uh, names like, um, the German Martin Luther or the Frenchman John Calvin or the American Jonathan Edwards, or the Brit John Owen, William Wilberforce, Charles Spurgeon, or the American evangelist Deal Moody, or the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or the Romanian Richard Wumbrand, and my hero, the British Anglican C.S. Lewis. And then there are missionaries such as William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, Jim Elliott, Lottie Moon, Amy Carmichael, Mary Slessor, Gladys Allward, Helen Rosevere, Corey Tinboom, and African-American leaders. We need to read people outside of our own ethnicity. African-American leaders such as Frederick Douglass or Lemuel Haynes or Bishop Daniel A. Payne, George Washington Carver, great Christian scientists, or pastors such as Francis J. Grimke, or Mary, Mary McLeod Bethune who went to Moody, and more recently E.K. Bailey and my favorite preacher Evie Hill. And then there are those such global figures that, who have just passed away in this decade, such as the British Anglican John Stott or the Ghanaian theologian Kwame Bejako. We need to read their stories about men and women all over the world and what God is doing from all different races and backgrounds, socioeconomic situation experiences, and hear their stories. We must look honestly at them, avoiding their faults and emulating their courage and dedication. And then we would find that God is at work in every generation. And that God is working through every people grouped, group. And then look forward to knowing that our work is not in vain, that God will cause our names to be remembered as we seek to follow him. You know why? Because the church is unstoppable. What did Jesus say? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have this tendency to get all down of what's going on in America, but you know what? The church is going to go forth. It's going to be victorious. Nothing can stop the church. Nothing. So we should be encouraged by that, not depressed, not down. We should be emboldened to know that no matter what goes on in the world, it won't stop God's work. Nothing can stop God's work. Now let's get back to our text. Look at verse 25 for a moment. So they called Samson out of the prison. He's in prison, and he entertained them. 
They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now here we have Samson brought out to be entertainment, to stand between these pillars, but what did he say? He wanted to feel the pillars. He needed to feel where he was. Now, as I was thinking of this passage, I was watching my, my kids, and my kids are great illustrations. And I was watching my seven-month-old son, uh, Jojo, Josiah. And, I, and we, we set him down on one of those bobby, boppy pillows, whatever those things are. We set him down, they put all these toys in front of him. And what does he do with each one? He feels it, he grabs it, he stares at it, and then he shoves it in his mouth. And he pulls it back down, and he looks at it again, and he plays with it. He wants to get a feel for it. And as I'm watching him do that, um, I called the living dead, uh, that would be my 11-year-old daughter, coming out of her bedroom, and she comes down with this blanket over her head. I don't know what she's doing, and she, I don't know a lot of things that she does. And she takes these sunglasses and puts them over the blanket. So she's walking down the stairs like this, looking like Cousin It. I don't, and she's walking into the, the, the dining room, and all I do is want to eat because the food's getting cold. Corn on the cob, you know, barbecue chicken. It was really good. And so I'm waiting for her, and I'm like, what are you doing? And she's feeling her way <laughs> around the room, and she sits down in my wife's seat, and I'm like, wrong seat. So she gets up, still trying to feel things, and sits down in her seat. And I'm laughing. I'm like, well, what's she doing? She's trying to feel her way. Like, where am I? What are my surroundings? And I'm watching my my seven-month-old is doing the same thing. He's feeling things. He's trying to understand his environment. You know, I think Samson, it's kind of a metaphor what he's doing. I need to feel where I am. And I think there's a greater reality there that he needs to, to feel his situation and where he's at now. He needs to take stock of his environment and think about how he got to where he was. See, I think that's what the point of this is, is that he is needing to get a feel for where we are. We have to do the same thing. Where are we spiritually right now in our walk with God? Where have the consequences of our sin led us? We have to get a feel of our environment. What, what, are, what kind of situation are we facing right now? See, it's, it's the idea of God's question to Adam and Eve after they had taken of the fruit in the garden. Remember, he comes into the garden after they've eaten the fruit, and what's the first thing he asked them? Where are you? Did he not know? Was it some cosmic game of hide and seek? No. The question was for Adam and Eve. Where are you? Think about where you've fallen. Think about where you are. You are hiding from me right now. The question is for us. Where are we in our walk with God right now? And Samson, he's feeling around. And yeah, it's a physical thing. But I think there's more of a greater metaphor that is here. He's trying to get a feel of where he is. And, and getting a feel of where we are, we have to recognize our situation. Recognize our situation. If we're to truly get a feel of where we are, I mean, think about what you're in right now. What are you dealing with right now? What circumstances are you finding yourself? Look at your family. Look at your career. Why are you there? Perhaps it could be uh, you're in a place where you do not wish to be, but that's because of choice, sinful choices that you may have made. But see, God is giving... an us an opportunity for forgiveness of second chances of u-turns that we can be right with him and it's not just our career choices and things like that it's about our greater relationship with god see samson when he was blind and destitute he's a joke and a tragic lesson of what happens when we turn from god he calls on god in this moment of crisis look at verse 28 then samson called to the lord and said O lord god Please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines. 
See, some believe that his prayer was completely selfish. Here he is now, even asking just for vengeance for himself. His life was pretty much one of selfishness. It wasn't for God's vindication, many think, but personal vengeance, another sign of how far he'd fallen, perhaps. Where it could be that he knew that only God could act. Desperation has a way of giving us extreme clarification. And for Samson, that meant calling on the Savior. He called on God. Let me ask you, where are you? Are you willing to call on God or are you still trying to handle it yourself? What are you dealing with right now? Are you, are you calling out to the Savior or are you trying to do it all on your own? We have this tendency to try to do it on our own. We have to call on the Savior just as he did. And then we must make sure that after we call on him, that we are relying on him for strength. Look at verse 29. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. See, he relies on God for strength, and God gives it to him one last time. Groping for the support columns, he places his hands on both of them and pushes them out. And we see that it was filled with men and women, 3,000 of them. Now, it's interesting. There's an excavation done of a Philistine temple at Tel Kassil in Tel Aviv. It reveals a structure a bit like this, the one that Samson was in, with a long room whose roof was originally supported by two wooden pillars set on the ground. And well-made stone bases placed among the center axis. So when these are complete support beams. Everybody would have been up there looking down into this kind of courtyard, if you will, watching him dance. He was entertainment. And him putting it down the whole structure came tumbling down. Now, I want to just address this as an aside. There's a great deal of, of controversy surrounding his death. Some scholars think that he had, it was suicide, um, and that he committed suicide. And there are some say, he, uh, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Uh, I would say that there is much wrong with Samson's life, and it ended as he lived. He lived for himself. But God still worked his purpose through him despite his awful and sinful choices. His life is a life lesson as not as to not what or, or what not to do. Not it's not supposed to be a debate about suicide that focuses on the, the validity of it. Now that being said, one commentator says this uh, and maintains that it was not suicide, but that it was the act of a hero who sees that it is necessary for him to plunge into the midst of his enemies and with inevitable certainty of death in order to affect the deliverance of his people and decide the victory which he is still to achieve. Samson would be all the more certain that this was the will of the Lord when he considered that even if he should deliver himself in any other way, uh, cut of the hands of the Philistines, he would always carry about him the mark of his shame and the blindness of his eyes, a mark of his unfaithfulness as the servant of God quite as much as the double triumph of his foes who gained a spiritual as well as corporal victory over him. It could be that, the act of a hero, but it's the tragic act of a hero because he kills more in death than he did in life. He delivers Israel, not so much politically, but theologically. But the cost is incalculable. He kills more in dying than he did in living. There have been, and then, then there was some type of recovery effort of the bodies where people having to remove the rubble and pull the bodies out because we see that his brothers and family came up, they got his body, and then they buried him in Zorah and Ishtael, where his ministry had started. He'd been Israel's judge for 20 years. Now, what can we learn from this fighter? What can we take away from him? We can see his life as a challenge and as a warning. 
But if we're to turn back to God and live the way, the life the way that God intended, then it requires us living by faith. Living by faith. His life, he did have faith, but it was a tainted faith. It was a compromised faith that we see being drawn out again and again and again. And as the scripture says, we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Now, if we're to truly look at his, exa- his life as a warning and a challenge, then we see that living by faith means renouncing hypocrisy. Renouncing hypocrisy. Because on one level, he's even hiding from his family what he was doing. It's, it reminds me of the story of a rather pompous-looking deacon who was endeavoring, endeavoring to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. And he said to these boys, Why do people call me a Christian? The man asked. After a moment's pause, one boy said, Maybe it's because they don't know you. I think many of us are a little bit like that. Secondly, I mean, we first must renounce hypocrisy. Secondly, we must make sure that we are accepting God's authority. Remember, the theme throughout Judges is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this moral compromise that we have going on throughout the book of Judges, I mean, and it, it's so bad that we see in the next couple chapters that one priest ends up having a concubine and he lets her be habitually raped, cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how bad everything had become. We even see that it's part of the people that are doing these bad stuff are Moses' descendants. This is how quickly the nation had gone down. That's what Judges is about, showing how bad and how far a people can go apart from God when they leave his authority in the dust and they start playing fast and loose with his commands. We have to be accepting God's authority, and that was revealed within the Word of God, the Bible. Learning to read the Word of God. I like how one man, what one man said. He said, this book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable, unchanging. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. Good words. Great work. So it means, living by faith means renouncing hypocrisy. It means accepting God's authority. And then lastly, it means trusting in His sovereignty. Trusting in his sovereignty. See, Samson, though he turned from God, God still used him. So we have this tendency to think, I'm going to go my own way, God. I'm going to do it my own way. We thumb our, our noses or you know, turn our face against God, saying, I'm going to do my own thing. And God is saying, you know what? I'm going to let you go your own way, but I'm still going to use you to accomplish my purpose, except you're not going to receive the joy and the peace that comes from it. 
I'm going to use you despite yourself. See, God can use us and will use us. But we should rather than have him use us in such a way that we don't receive peace and joy and fullness of purpose. We should surrender ourselves to him and experience the joy of knowing that we are doing what God has made us to do that he's enabled us to have new life in him, that we are to be his ambassadors, emissaries of his kingdom, bearing within ourselves the true life and light of Christ, made for good works that the world might see who Jesus is in and through us, that they might see the crucified Savior who died for them, that they can have peace with God, that Christ died for each one of us that are here today. And he offers that opportunity for you to receive it by faith. None of us are moral and righteous in and of ourselves. We are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. This angry God sent his son to bear the price for our sins, that we might receive forgiveness and have new life and purpose in him, that it's available to all of us who come to him in repentance and faith, calling on the name of the Lord, that if we believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Do you believe? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ to give for him to give you purpose and peace and meaning with God, then do so today. Place your faith in him. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Confess him that he is Lord and Savior of your life, and then yield yourself to follow him, and he will give you great joy and peace with himself. And for, for us who have placed our trust and faith in him, that we continually walk with him day after day, looking at the example of Samson as a warning, saying that God can do great things through us, but may we be fully surrendered to him and may our life not be a bittersweet symphony, but may it be a sweet symphony of praise that others might hear and delight to the glory of God and our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful, tragic, conflicted figure of Samson. Lord, may we follow his courage. May we be challenged by the great feats that you did through him. May we take a greater step of faith to believe that you can use us to do great things despite ourselves. And Lord, though you used Samson to deliver your people, we see the, the failings and the faults and the sins that he was susceptible to. And we know all too well the faults and sins in our own lives. We know how quickly and how often we fall. Lord, may we not follow his example, but may we forsake hypocrisy, seeking to obey you with the, the trueness of our hearts. Lord, help us to seek the real you, and may it be the real us who seek you. May we not put on airs. May we not uh, try to be a part of a masquerade, but may we be transparent before you. And Lord, may you use us for the glory of your name. May you teach us humility and grace. May we see and be strengthened by grace and the forgiveness that has been made available to us through the death and resurrection of Christ. And may we delight in you and truly live an exemplary life that points other people to the greatness of our Lord and our Savior. Lord, give us a heart for the world. Help us to see who you are. And Lord, help us to believe you to do great things because we know that you can do more in and through us than we could ask or imagine according to that power that is at work within us. So Lord, may we believe that fact. May we live in the reality of that truth for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray.